Howell Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a mess in Washington. The uh, This is now the seventh ballot for a, a speaker. And because the Republicans only have a four-vote majority, that's all the votes that McCarthy could lose. And already in the seventh, uh, already there's 17 people that have voted against him. So we're, we're, we're not going, it's got to go to at least an eighth ballot. I, um... I, I guess this is one of these things where you just it's just so incredibly frustrated. It makes Republicans look bad. It makes the, the government look bad as well. And it, it's going to be a problem over the next two years because you have a small faction of ultra right wing Republicans who have taken the, the burn it down position. As I was saying to Steve just a couple of minutes ago, the, the idea that we, we want stuff that's perfect. And if we don't get stuff that's perfect, well, what we're going to do is we're just going to, at least perfect in our mind, we're just not going to support this. And because the margins are so narrow, they have the ability to do it. And it, it goes beyond who the, the speaker ends up being, because I think you're going to see this moving forward, you know, for, for everything. And it's it's not good. I mean, if I was in Congress, I'd want to go do stuff. And as I was saying earlier, if I can get, if I got a bill and 80% of it is what I want, and I don't like the other 20%. I'm still going to take that 80%, declare victory, and then work on getting that other 20% somewhere down the line. But that is not the philosophy that some people have. And unfortunately, one of the, the things that has happened now, because politics has become so very, very tribal, the, the, the handful of of Republican representatives who have decided that they're they're not going to play ball and that they're not going to cooperate, they, they come from such heavily Republican districts that they're not held accountable by their constituents. So, you know, they can say, oh, we're just going to stick our, you know, feet in the sand and we're not going to move. And, you know, we don't care if we shut down the entire country. They're willing to do that. And unfortunately, they don't face very many consequences at home. It, it just it it just looks like we're going to have two years of not being able to get anything done. Where do I ultimately see this going? I think it's going to be somebody else um, in. I, I thought it was real interesting you know, you talk to some people and everybody would think, hey, being the Speaker of the House of Representatives, you're number three in line for the presidency. That would be really cool. And I, I've known a lot of people personally who've been in Congress over the years and including Paul Ryan, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who will tell you it, it's a it's a thankless job. It, it really is. You spend most of your time traveling around the country raising money for Republican candidates and recruiting Republican candidates. I mean, that's that's what the job is. You sign up to be Speaker of the House. And I had an opportunity to, to meet and speak with Newt Gingrich, you know, on, on multiple occasions over the years. And, and that that's what the guy's life was when he was Speaker of the House. You're traveling around the country. You're recruiting people to run in this particular district in Missouri next year or whatever. You're helping those people raise money. It's It's a... You know, being in Congress is a full-time job. I get it. But this is like a full-time job on steroids. And the fact is, besides the fancy title and the big office, 
A lot of people, that's just not what they want. So out of the 222 Republicans in Congress, there's probably really only a handful that are qualified and, and really want this. My guess would be at some point in time, um, Jim Jordan, who um, is he's, he's an ally of uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, he's an ally of McCover. He's, he's conservative, but he's not crazy conservative. He's from Ohio. He's been in Congress for a long time. He's a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. So he, you know, gets gets along with a lot of the people who are in that faction. So I, I think at some point in time, if it looks like McCarthy's just not going to be able to get the votes that he needs, and it's apparently looking closer to that, I think even though there's somebody who doesn't want the job, they in fact may step forward and say, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to do it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Jim Jordan. Some of the other names and some of the people that are getting votes now, they've only been in Congress like one term or two terms. I just don't think that's, I don't think that's going to happen either. So uh, who knows how it's going to turn out, but it's, it's not a good look. All right. We start out with a little issue, but it is one of my pet peeves. And it's the, the larger issue that comes from my little issue is the, the whole notion of, of virtue signaling. So for a variety of reasons, this morning I'm driving my wife's car into work. My car is, the, the car that I regularly drive is a 2017 Honda CRV. And we also have a 2020 Honda CRV. My wife, she always gets the newer ones. Don't know how exactly that works, but she always gets the newer ones, so that's okay. But for a variety of reasons, I am driving the new car, the newer car, in today. The big difference in those two CRVs is the fact that even though the newer car has a couple more bells and whistles, it also has this auto idle stop feature that I didn't realize was on it when we purchased it. But I I found out if you do not, this is now pretty much standard equipment on many of the new vehicles. If you are driving, what happens is when you come to like a red light and you stop, if you have not been moving forward for a, a certain period of time, what happens is the engine shuts off. And then what happens is when you release, you take your foot off the brake and you start to move, the engine starts up again. But the, the, the car, essentially, it, it's, it sort of shuts down for that period of time. First time it happened to me, and I didn't even realize this feature was on there. I was getting ready to make a left turn, and all of a sudden the, the car kind of stops when I'm in this intersection, and I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. And then, you know, I, so I figured out what exactly this was. But I, I, I hate, 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 hate this particular feature. Because the, the car makers put this feature on vehicles with the idea that we can save some gas. The, the idea being, you know, cars, if the engine's not running, when the car is idling, well, you don't need the gas to, to do that, so you can save it. In the real world, maybe, maybe you get a 3% savings, and that's a maybe. They're, they're still not really sure about that, but in the real world, maybe it's about 3%. The flip side is... On a lot of these cars, it's noticeable when the car stops and then there's just a little bit of a pause, which is annoying, and I think it can be dangerous. On top of that, you've got other issues. Now, I don't claim to be an auto mechanic, but you know, every time this happens, the, the starter engages. So under normal circumstances, like on my old car that does not have this feature, I start the car in my garage, pull out, and I only start the car once. 
The battery is only called on to to start the car once, and then I drive, I come down to work, I get out of the car, I turn the car off. Well, if you've got this auto idle stop feature and you're driving, it's entirely possible. I was keeping track today. I, I, I hit more than 10 spots on my way into work where if I had not disengaged it, the auto idle stop would have shut down the car. Now, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me it cannot be good um, the wear and tear on parts to have the car starting over and over again. Now, I understand some of the car makers say, well, we're going to make bigger starters. They're going to be better. This shouldn't be a problem. I, I don't I don't see how that can be because, you know, it just every day, if this is it's the difference between starting your car two or three times and starting your car 20 or 30 times, that, that's got to wear out the starters faster. It just seems to me it does. And I understand some of the auto manufacturers and say, oh, no, no, that's not going to happen. But but that's that's the reality of it. So I think it's going to be harder on a number of the parts. The amount of savings that you get from this are slim, slim. I, I won't say none, but, but they're slim. But yet um, what you have is this is the feature that is in these cars, and you have no choice. You cannot buy a car without this feature. You can buy a car, like mine does, that you has a button that you can disable it, but you have to disable it every time you start the car. So you have to remember to do this, you know, shut it off every time you start the vehicle. And there is talk about new cars coming out, not even having the button, the feature that allows you to disable auto idle stop. We bought a new car that's getting delivered like late February, early March. And that was one of the first questions I asked once we had decided on the vehicle. I said, okay, the 2023 model of the car I just purchased, is this going to have the ability to disable the auto idle stop feature. And the salesman assured me it was. Because I'll tell you, if it didn't, I might have rethought that. So the big picture is we, we've got this, hey, we're the government. We're going to tell you that this is the way that we're going to make you, you know, be able to, to save a little bit of gasoline. I'm not sure it saves stuff. I think in the long run, it's going to, you know, again, you're going to see starters and batteries going out sooner, maybe other parts of the car as well. But beyond that, I think at least to me, it's just a nuisance. It might not bother you. You might love it. But the fact that the government is essentially now requiring this, my comment would be to, to what end? Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, for those of you who deal with this auto idle stop feature, and they, they call it different things in different automobiles, great, worth the effort, or just an annoying requirement put on auto manufacturers in an effort to try to, again, reduce emission standards. I mean, if you've got something that's really going to reduce emission standards, I, I get it. But I don't think this does it. I think it's got all sorts of problems, and I just think it's annoying. 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I, look, and I don't claim to be a mechanic, but you've got this auto idle stop feature, which is designed to right. And it, the, the, one of our textures says, "Well, it's not just gas; it's emissions." Well, that, that's it. If you're using less gas, you're, you're producing the, you're producing fewer emissions. It, it's all kind of like tied up. But but this idea that the car is going to stop is just, to me, I think it's annoying. I also think it's going to be the unintended consequences are going to be the impact this has on all the other parts of the car, like, for example, the starter, which 
it is used 10 or 15 times to get you to work when otherwise it would be used as one. I, I'm sorry, I understand the auto manufacturers, I'm looking at this, as well, this isn't going to be a problem because the starter is going to be reinforced and designed to withstand continuous use without wearing out too fast. Well, okay, but if you use something 20 times a day versus one time a day, it is much more likely to wear out sooner. What am I missing? One of our texters says, Jeff, regarding the auto stop uh, problem, it is a problem. I work for a huge parts store and a lot of new cars with that feature. It's the wear and tear. You're right, not only on the starters, but also on the alternators, the batteries, and the electrical system in general. Jeff, I first encountered the auto engine killer on a rental car some years back. Uh, I hated it. Just another way for the government to get us out of our cars and into mass transit. Um, yeah, Jeff, it also stops your air conditioning when it's 90 degrees out. Um, yeah, Jeff, I agree it's annoying, but don't you think things like additional wear and tear on the battery and starter were considered when designing these new cars? No, I, I don't. This is an effort that the car dealer, that the car manufacturers are making to try to get under the EPA mileage requirements. That That's what this is. And why do the car manufacturers care if your starter goes out a little bit sooner? Because then you're the one that has to buy the new starter. Let's talk to Linda in Kenosha. Linda, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Um, I have a little bit of a different situation. First of all, I drive a Subaru Crosstrek, and I can shut that system off at my system level. I don't have to do it each time I turn on my car. Okay. So that's nice. Oh yeah. If, um, if I could however, just, if I, I could turn I, I, it off, I, that if you could just turn it off and leave it off. I, I wouldn't have a beef with that, but that's that's not the way it is in most of the cars. You, you can turn it off, but then it automatically, the default position is it comes on next time you start the car, so you have to keep remembering to turn it off. Okay. Well, maybe I, maybe I do have to do that, and I just haven't realized it, because even when I know it's on, um, like right now, I'm pulling to a stop right now. I tend to to slow down far ahead of my stop. Oh. So when I'm now that I'm actually stopped, my car doesn't shut down because I'm not pressing that hard on my brake. Okay. So you're never so really coming to a complete is, stop. You're just kind of easing into it. No, I'm at a complete stop right now and my okay. car's still running. Okay. But I'm not pressing hard on my gas pedal. I'm pressing just hard enough to keep my car from going anywhere. Huh. So it's... when it does shut down, it surprises me. Huh. Because I don't normally stop on a dime like that. Right, right. So just something to throw in there. Maybe yeah. people, because I've noticed a lot of people, they charge into their stop where to the point that I'm afraid they may not be stopping. I think that's when it kicks in for me. Yeah, interesting. But because I'm a slow stopper, it hardly kicks in. Yeah, no, thanks. For, and, and it may be, I mean, it might be different in different models of vehicles how, how this works out. Jeff, I was a mechanic as well as an engineer that designed engines. Starting an engine causes a great deal of wear and tear on that engine. Um, yeah, Jeff, a car takes more gas to start than it does idling. I don't believe they're saving any gas at all. Jeff, uh, my background is in power transmissions. Once you stop an engine, yes, there are wear consequences in starting up again. This not only affects electrical components of the car, but mechanical features such as the belt stretch. Now throw in thermal conditions, below zero temps, extremely hot conditions. You're wearing, con- uh, con- you are wearing components out faster, period. And that, and again, that, that is what makes sense to me. Now, I, I don't claim to be an engineer, but all I, again, I keep coming back to this is if, 
you're, you're starting your car over and over and over again to save a, a essentially a, a teaspoonful of gas, um, maybe over the entire drive to work, but you're starting your car 10, 12 times. This is going to be, I think, one of the unintended consequences. Jeff, the worst thing you can do is to a car is start it. The instant the engine shuts down, all the oil goes back to the crankcase. It takes a second to start reflowing. Yeah, that's, um, I, I think, and again, it's, to me, where, where I really first noticed this was I was, the first time this kicked in for me is I, I was, I remember I was making a left turn. I'm out in the intersection. There's cars coming the other way and I'm getting ready to, you know, pull in front of the cars to make the left turn. And all of a sudden the car has stopped and I'm going, okay. And then it, I mean, it started up again. I'm thinking, what the heck is this? And then I learned it was the auto idle stop. Um, Jeff, I have uh, I have it in my 2016 BMW. Turned it off the day I purchased it. Never turned it back on. But for some reason, when I take the car in for service, they turn it back on. I think it's worthless. And again, I, if if I had a vehicle that allowed me to just plain turn it off and and leave it off, I, I'd be fine. But again, most of the cars, that's not it. That's not the default position. Jeff, um, my bigger. Um, I, Let's see, 855-616-1620. Jeff, putting this feature on regular vehicles is nonsense. The feature originally started out on hybrids, but they were originally designed to work this way. Um, yeah, if you're talking about an electric vehicle or a hybrid, there, there's an entirely different uh, – it starts in a different way. You've got the battery motor. You've got the gasoline engine that kicks in. You know, no question about it. Um, let's talk to – David in Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Thanks David. for taking my call. Sure. Uh, really quickly. So I have that feature on uh, my car. One car, I actually cannot turn it off. The other one, I can. Uh, but it, when you restart it up, uh, it goes back to default position right. where you have to then press it off again. What I told your call screener, though, is this. This is what I'd be more worried about. And obviously, we saw what happened in Buffalo, New York, with all these people who were stranded on the freeway. Right. And part of it is the fact that, you know, when you're stopping and going and stopping and every, you know, everything else, some of those people were stranded because of the, the weather conditions. And I guess, you know, I didn't read anything as far as, like, fatalities are concerned, but... The point is, is when you're in a situation like that, when you're in a severe winter blizzard and your car is going on and off, uh, who knows if it's going to restart? You know, I mean, it's I would I would be very wary of having that situation happen and uh, get stranded completely. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. Now, it it varies from model to model. Um, Sometimes when it's like really cold or really hot and your, your car's air conditioning is running or the heating's running or it hasn't reached a certain level, it, it won't kick in because you, you, the, the battery isn't going to be able to supply enough heat or cooling. But I guess th- this to me, again, it's the classic example of virtue signaling. We want to reduce emissions. Don't you love the planet? So let's put this thing on that is going to cause your car, in my opinion, to wear out a lot sooner. Let's put this feature on, which is going to aggravate people so we can say we're doing something. So... I got acquainted again, reacquainted with auto idle stop this morning. Memo when I'm driving home, remember to push that button, turning it off. And we're getting a handful of people who are texting or saying, oh, we, we actually love this feature. And, and th- that, that's fine. If, my idea would be 
If you want to make this available as an option on cars and, and you want it, that that's fine. If you want to put it on there but allow people to disable it permanently, I, I think, you know, that that's that's the way to go, too. But this idea that we are the government, we're going to tell you what you need to do, and so we're going to make you have to disable it every time you start the car or the move that is afoot to not even allow you to disable it in the first place. And I think that's coming, if not in the next year's models, maybe one or two years down the road. That's where my objection is. Okay, let me read this here promo. On Sunday night, if we win, we're in. Green Bay plays Detroit with a playoff berth on the line. We'll have a day long we'll have day long coverage on WTMJ Sunday at noon, leading you up to kickoff at seven twenty. And as soon as the game ends, we'll be live with instant reaction and expert analysis. The best coverage before and after the game is on Wisconsin's radio station, News Radio WTMJ. I, I I saw that that promo, and it was kind of interesting. There's a story in the Wisconsin State Journal, and, and the headline, maybe it maybe it grabbed readers, but it, it's one of these most ridiculous headlines around. Here's here's what it says: Last day at Lambeau, Aaron Rodgers knows Sunday night Sunday might be his final home game with the Packers. While the Green while the Green Bay Packers, um, Aaron Rodgers understands the scenario. This is how it starts. While the Green Bay Packers quarterback would love nothing more than to beat the Detroit Lions on Sunday night football and punch his team's ticket to the NFL pro season, postseason, he also knows his team will be the NFC's number seven seed, meaning a home playoff game cannot happen. And that means the Packers' primetime matchup with the Lions will be his final game at Lambeau Field if he decides to retire after the season. And then it goes on. Can, can we just have an honest conversation here? There is no way in God's green earth that Aaron Rodgers is retiring after this year. Aaron Rodgers is guaranteed $58 million next year. Now, Aaron Rodgers, I guess it's conceivable that the Packers could work out a way to trade him if they wanted to do that, and that's a fair conversation. But Aaron Rodgers, even as sort of odd as Aaron Rodgers can be, there's Aaron Rodgers has done nothing throughout the course of his career, which has indicated that he has ever been willing to leave money on the table. And, and I, I get it. I'm, but remember, there's lots, of, there's lots of quarterbacks who over the years have, have restructured their contracts and taken less money because they've already made a ton of money so that the team would have extra to spend on so other players. That has never been Aaron Rodgers. I mean, Aaron Rodgers has always, and I, I get it. We, we saw with the, you know, catastrophic injury that happened to the, the player on, on Monday Night Football. I, I understand that, you know, these football players, they take lots of risks and things like that. But Aaron Rodgers has always been about Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers ain't walking away from $58 million. That, that's just, so this talk about Aaron Rodgers retiring, give me a break. He, he's not going to retire. It might be, like I say, it might be his last game at Lambeau Field if the Packers decide to trade him and they can find some team to partner up and he's willing to go. I, there's all those different factors. But, oh, Aaron Rodgers might retire. Let's just, before the season's over, let's just put this to bed because he's not walking away from $58 million, period. He's just flat out not. And, all right, here's, you can mark the tape on this one. i tell you what, if after the season ends, if Aaron Rodgers decides to announce that he is retiring and he's leaving that $58 million on the table, I will I will wear a Detroit Lions sweatshirt for an entire week while doing the show. That is my offer. 
Um, but it's not going to happen because Aaron Rodgers isn't going to walk away from $58 million. And by the way, I don't necessarily fault him. You've got somebody who you're at the end of your career. Somebody's going to offer you and pay you $58 million. I don't care how much money you have. You know, you, you always want to have more money. That's just generally the thing. So Aaron Rodgers might be his last home game at Lambeau Field. Well, it's going to be his last home game at Lambeau Field this year. But unless he's traded, he'll be back for opening day next season because He's not going anywhere, and I understand it. There's 58 million reasons why he's going to be back. All right. This is, I think, one of the most significant, if not the most significant, criminal justice initiative in the last half century, and you have a say on it. Tony Evers does not have a say on it, but you do. Here is the deal. There is an amendment to the Wisconsin Constitution, which has already been passed by one session of the state Senate and the state, um, the state House, the Assembly and the Senate. If it passes a new, a second session, so and you have a new session, so last year the old Senate, the old Assembly passed it, this year it will be considered by the new Senate and the new Assembly. If it passes, it then goes to the voters. And if the legislature can get its act together and get this passed in the next month or so, it will go to the voters in April on the ballot. And you will have a chance to change the Wisconsin Constitution. If voters approve it after it has been approved by two separate sessions of the Assembly and the Senate, it becomes the law. Tony Evers doesn't get to veto it. Tony Evers doesn't get to water it down. It's just the way it works. Last year, this amendment I'm talking about passed the Assembly 70-21. It passed the Senate 23-10 to last session. So if the Senate and the Assembly get their act together, you can have a say on this in April. All right, so what does this amendment do? In Wisconsin, it will change materially the way judges and court commissioners get to look at bail for people. The way it stands now, under the law, the exclusive thing that judges or court commissioners are able to look at in setting bail is whether or not somebody is a flight risk. Are they likely to show up for trial? Now, obviously, the significance of the crime is sort of an indirect factor in that because if you're looking at a, I don't know, at, at five days in jail for spitting on the sidewalk, chances that, that you showing up for trial are much better than if you're looking at 15 counts of murder and you've got nothing to lose because if you're convicted, you're going away for life. So seriousness is indirectly implicated in, in the whole cash bail process. But what this amendment would do is it would allow judges in looking at the decision to make bail, they would be able to consider whether or not the person, if released, would pose a danger to the community. And, and this is how the federal system has worked for, for decades, actually, since I worked in the federal system. So a judge having somebody like a Daryl Brooks could look at, okay, this is, what is the guy's flight risk? But if I release him on bail or in determining what the appropriate amount of bail is, I'm also able to take into a fact into account the fact that the guy's prior record, 
um, what is the nature and underlying circumstances of the crime. If I release this guy who, for example, let's say they've already he was already out on bail. He's committed other crimes while out on bail. So now I get as a judge to decide the fact that, well, you got bail once. Okay, what is to say that, and then you went out and you committed a, you violated your bail, you didn't appear, you, you, you were caught with a gun or whatever. I'm now entitled to consider whether you are going to commit more crimes moving forward as a factor in what your appropriate bail would be. Now, you've got a lot of the lefties who are saying, oh, this is terrible. This is going to result in more people being held pre-trial. To which my response is, yeah, yeah, it is. And you know what? That's a good thing, because one of the things that we are seeing is that this cash bail does you put somebody out on signature bail or on five hundred dollars bail and then they get caught reckless driving 90 miles an hour in a stolen car with a gun. And then you turn around and you release them on five on on three thousand dollars bail. And then they steal another car and they blow through a red light and they hit and kill somebody. And at that point in time, well, it's too late to bring those folks back. The ability to consider somebody's prior record and the nature of the offense they are charged with in setting bail, to me, it is an absolute no-brainer. And I think if the legislature gets it acts together, you will have a chance to vote on that in April. You'll have a chance to say yay or nay as to whether or not we should change the Constitution to give judges more power to hold dangerous criminals or people accused of very, very dangerous crimes with either with a higher bail before they go out and therefore deprive them of the opportunity while they're awaiting bail to go out and kill witnesses against them or things of the like. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Dangerousness as a factor, criminal record as a factor in setting an appropriate bail. Yay or nay? To me, this is a no-brainer. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Jeff, thanks for your continuing attention to topics related to law and order and bringing them to our attention. From each discussion, it's up to us voters to follow through with votes or calls to our representatives. Well, this is a case where, assuming the legislature gets its act together, and I think they will. You will have a chance in April when you go. You should have a chance to vote on this constitutional amendment. And again, Tony Evers can't water it down. You can't have people in the legislature that challenge it and say, OK, you know, we here we're, we're not going to agree with this. We're going to filibuster or whatever. No, I mean, you will get the chance to decide whether you want to give judges and court commissioners more latitude in determining what is appropriate for pretrial release beyond simply, hey, we're, we're going to put people out on the street. And, and by the way, and will they, will they end up coming back? And, and by the way, for everybody who's out there saying, oh, this is going to be terrible, you're going to be locking up all these people, like I say, this is, this is not a novel concept, that the federal system has allowed dangerousness, prior criminal record and things. Um, are you a danger to the community? Are, that's, that's been the standard, well, since I was a federal prosecutor a long time ago. The standard being, is somebody a flight risk? Fine. And is somebody going to be a danger to the community? What are the conditions of bail that you could set which would guarantee you that somebody is not going to go out and commit future crimes? 
What are the indicators of that? Well, the seriousness of the crime they committed and also what their criminal record is. Has somebody been released on bail before and continue to commit crimes? Well, if that's the case, why should we think that letting somebody out on $300 bail or $1,000 bail or $5,000 bail, why should we think that that's going to stop them from committing crimes in the future? What it typically means is, yes, you're going to have to have more bail, a higher bail, but also you're going to have to have people come forward who will put that up, who will put up the bail, who will vouch for the people and say, look, I'm I'm willing to lose that. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that in the next hour about how that's playing out in the real world. But to me, this is just a no-brainer. Let's talk to Tom in Sun Prairie. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I agree with your uh, state, your uh, mm-hmm. line of thinking, thinking with the uh, violent criminals. But I'd also like to throw one other thing in there. I think we should do what Canada does. And for nonviolent offenders, bail is set based on their ability to pay. In other words, somebody gets picked up for two ounces of marijuana, if they're poor, they end up in jail. If they're rich, they get out on bail. And well, that's the way Canada does. They're not, not violent offenders. Yeah, I guess, I mean, Tom, thanks. I see here, here's um, one of the, I'm trying to think how I want to say this exactly. I, I understand, I, I, I would be curious to know how many people who are arrested with, in your example, two ounces of pot are, are sitting in jail waiting for, for trial. My guess is that's very, very few. Now, I'm, I'm not in a position to say nobody, but, I mean, my God, you around here, you steal a car, you're a convicted felon, you've got a gun in the car, Your chances are you're going to be released on a $1,000 bail or a $3,000 bail. I mean, that, that's just what the chances are. So I'm, I really question the premise of whether or not somebody who... Uh, again, misdemeanor in your case, uh, example, your misdemeanor possession of pot is really sitting in jail based on their inability to pay. What I have found, and I, I say this repeatedly, is you you got to understand in around here you got to work to get yourself thrown in jail you, in, or sent to prison. You 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 have to. The, the problem isn't that we send too many people to prison. The problem is we don't send enough people to to prison because you have judges that will bend over backwards to avoid imposing long sentences for a variety of reasons. And as a result of that, it goes back to what I argue about the broken windows theory of law enforcement, which is the small stuff. You, you you make a big deal of small stuff so it doesn't become bigger stuff. But I understand that's out of fashion right now. But what happens is you, you have people I don't we're not locking enough enough people for the small stuff. So I really question how many people, for example, are sitting at the House of Correction awaiting trial on on a couple ounces of, of marijuana possession unless unless it's a situation where they violated their parole or something like that, or they violated terms of their probation, not being allowed to possess drugs or something like that. But your, your first time, your, your first offender, two ounce of, of marijuana, I just don't think those are the people that you're going to find that are ending up in jail. See, bottom line of this, and one of our texters makes a very, very good point. The texter says, look, Jeff, the problem is, as long as you've got progressive judges and court commissioners who don't want to preventively detain people, that this law isn't going to work out. Well, and, and I appreciate that you can make that, that argument because ultimately it's going to come down to the, the court commissioners and the judges who make this decision. 
And I guess all I can say is if you've got judges, because right now what you have is court commissioners and judges who wash their hands of a lot of bad decisions they make. They say, well, we we made this decision, but you have to understand we couldn't do anything because all we could do is look at flight risk. And, you know, we determined this person wasn't a, a flight risk. Well, all right, take that excuse away from them. Um, and if you have judges that are still releasing people on stupid low bails after committing dangerous crimes or if they have lengthy criminal records, well, okay, then maybe somebody just maybe will run against them. In any event, this could very well be on the ballot in April. And essentially the voters get to say yay or nay. Once it's on the ballot, you get to decide whether to amend the state constitution. We'll talk more about it as it gets closer, assuming it is on the ballot. But for me, some votes are hard. Some decisions are tough. Some are easy. This would be the easiest decision you would have on the ballot for years. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. For those of you keeping score at home, they have now started the eighth ballot. This is the third day. It is the eighth ballot in an attempt to find a Speaker of the House. And again, Kevin McCarthy, who is the choice of... uh, There's 222 Republicans in the House of Representatives. He needs 218 to be elected. And um, there's people can you can manipulate it a little bit by by some people choose to vote present. But for all intents and purposes, he can only lose four votes. And as it stands right now, this is the eighth vote, um, 16 with one no vote. But I, I don't unless there's been something dramatic that has happened to change the, the dynamic. Um, I, I don't I don't know how this is going to be different, but, you know, maybe things maybe things will will change this time. But um, then we're still we're still going through this process. And uh, bottom line is what you have is the, the House of Representatives completely paralyzed. One of the interesting things is apparently none of the employees get paid until they uh, n- none of the employees get paid which could be a a big deal for them as well all right i had a, there was a story that caught my attention i think i saw the story on uh yeah it was on channel 12 it, it my my wife called called my attention to it and, and it was in the category of people will will steal anything and i said yeah people will steal anything i i love it when Wauwatosa police last week started a pursuit with a driver who refused to pull over, they didn't know what to expect. The chase ended minutes later in a serious crash, then a foot chase in Milwaukee. Okay, no surprise there. Two men were arrested. It was then that the police discovered their car was full of stolen mail. An investigation revealed at least some of it was taken minutes earlier from a blue U.S. Postal Service mailbox on North Avenue near Wauwatosa City Hall. Um, Wauwatosa police are still investigating how the men obtained the key they used to steal the mail, opening the mailbox. But those so-called arrow keys can be used to open any blue mailbox in a zip code. They're the same arrow keys that give mail carriers access to community mailboxes like those in apartment buildings. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why mail carriers are at such risk nowadays. Because what happens is you have these people who realize that if you can get the keys that the mail carrier has, 
It's pretty much like the keys to the kingdom if you want to to find stolen mail because those keys, they're like universal keys. Once you get one of those keys, you can go into apartment buildings. You can open all the mailboxes in apartment buildings. You can, in this case, apparently get into some of the mailboxes and steal them. And this apparently is the latest thing as people are going in looking for, you know, stolen checks that you can then – sell on the internet to other people but it's one of these categories that people will steal just about anything all right we were talking in the last segment of the program about something that you can do maybe in april to make the community safer by giving judges and prosecutors more power to detain potentially dangerous people before their their trial comes along Well, here's something that you can't directly do, but I think it's something that is long overdue. Now, we've we've talked for the last several years about the the huge problems in Wisconsin and in general, but in particular in southeastern Wisconsin with reckless driving. Can I see a show of hands? Anybody who over the course of, oh, the last two weeks has been out and about on the roads and has watched somebody driving like a complete and total jack wagon. Hmm. Mm, Almost all the hands go up. Okay, so you've got that. Um, Same sort of question. Um, You've got the reckless driving that is going on. Well, reckless driving is not a crime. Reckless driving is an offense. It's an ordinance violation for which you can get a ticket. And the way it works right now is you get the reckless driving ticket. The ticket is limited to, let me see, what is it? I think it's 250 bucks. To, to start off with that that's the the ticket um there is a state representative who is trying to convince lawmakers to raise the cost of the reckless driving ticket which now by the way is only two hundred dollars to five hundred dollars for a second offense and roughly a thousand dollars for a third offense or more that would be the argument that here you know if people are going out and they're doing this consistently what we need to do is we need to up the ante on this okay that's that's one idea i have a different idea now do i oppose increasing the the penalties for reckless driving no i i don't but let's be honest here many 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 i would argue most of the people who are engaged in reckless driving they don't give a rat's rump about the tickets they're they're not going to pay a 200 dollar fine They're not going to pay a $500 fine. They're not going to pay a $1,000 fine. You can give them the tickets. They will crumple them up as soon as the police officer walks away, or maybe, you know, before the police officer walks away, throw them in the backseat of the vehicle and take off. The, The idea of fining people does nothing. We've learned this from the idea that um, of people driving without driver's licenses. You, you catch them driving without the license. Okay, you give them a fine. Three days later, they're, they're driving a driver. They're driving again. They don't care. It's not a deterrent. Now, for you or for me, maybe getting a $500 fine or a $1,000 fine would be something that you, you'd think of. But for the general people who are, hey, I'm going to drive 90 miles an hour in the bike lane and I'm going to run through a red light. Okay, a $500 fine doesn't make any difference because they're not going to pay it. So my question is, instead of increasing the fines, why don't we meaningfully increase the penalties? Now, for example, in this state, first offense drunk driving 
is not a crime. It, it, it's not. It's an ordinance violation. Now, there's all sorts of penalties that come along with it, but it's not a crime. Second offense, drunk driving, is with particular penalties. Third offense, drunk driving, is with greater penalties. We have a sliding scale. My question is, rather than fooling around with, oh, let's increase the fines that aren't a deterrent and people aren't going to pay, what about increasing the penalties in a meaningful fashion? First offense, reckless driving, okay, that's a fine. You can get fined up to $1,000. Second offense, reckless driving, that is a crime. Maybe it carries a year and a half in prison. Third offense, reckless driving, it's a crime that carries a maximum penalty of up to five years in prison. Figure out what the penalty scheme you want to have is. But if we're serious about reckless driving, don't we need to start talking meaningfully about penalties? And candidly, to me, anytime you've got a reckless driver, Somebody that's that's going to blow through a red light at, at 65 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone to, to wait until they hit and kill somebody, at which point in time then it is a felony and they're going to go off to prison for a long time. Why do we wait until they do that? Because a $500 fine or a $200 fine, it's not stopping them from doing it. The only thing that will stop them from doing that is either putting them in prison or a fear that people are going to go to prison. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. There's a Democrat legislator who's pushing for increasing fines for reckless driving. I don't care about that one way or the other, other than that is just putting lipstick on a pig. That's not solving the problem. And candidly, if you're going to drive in a reckless fashion, you can define reckless driving however you want, whether it's knowingly and intentionally running red lights more than 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. I'm not talking about declaring every time somebody comes to a rolling stop and on on a right turn on red that that rises to the level of reckless driving. But define it appropriately. And then punish it appropriately. Anybody have any problems with criminalizing second, third, fourth, fifth offense, reckless driving? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Back to discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Welcome them as a sponsor to the program. So there's a legislature legislator in Madison who says, "I I want to increase the penalties for reckless driving. Right now it's a two hundred dollar fine. I want to make second offense reckless driving a five hundred dollar fine. Third offense a thousand dollar fine." My my response is, "Why? I mean, what, the the people don't pay the two hundred dollar fine. They could care less." You think a $500 fine or a $1,000 fine is going to deter them? No. My argument would be, let, let's get serious about this. Let's let's say we're going to treat this just like we do as drunk driving. First time reckless offense, reckless driving offense. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll allow it to be, we'll allow it to be a civil forfeiture. $200 fine, $500 fine, whatever you want to make it to be. But after that, you're going to jail. Is that an unreasonable sort of thing? And again, define reckless driving however you want. You, you want to make sure it's a significant sort of thing. But why are we put up with this? Jeff, there's a guy currently in the Walworth County Jail who's been cited for reckless driving since the 1990s. I'm, I'm sure 
there is. I mean, there, there's no question uh, about this. This is something that there's no deterrent for. Jeff, unfortunately, nobody wants to get serious about reckless driving. Just the like the idea that red light cameras will fix the problem. Reckless drivers will not pay fines, and most of the cars flying through red lights either have no license plates or they are driving stolen cars. Well, there, there's no question, by the way, that stolen cars and reckless driving go hand in hand. Now, is it possible to drive recklessly when you're not in a stolen car? Well, yes, it is. But my guess is if you would look at a lot of the reckless driving you see, a good percentage, maybe even a majority of it, is in cars that they're end up being stolen. Because it's not your car. You know, what what do you care? And again, we wait around here, we wait and wait and wait until one of these chronic restless reckless drivers blows through the red light and hits and kills somebody. And at that point in time, oh, we, we get all serious about this. Well, maybe if we got serious about it the fifth or sixth or seventh or maybe even the second or third time they drove in a reckless fashion, maybe more people would be alive. Now, the, the district attorney in Milwaukee County, in the story I was looking at on TM, TMJ4, he said, well, I think what we also need to do is increase the penalty for car theft. We need to raise it from a minimum, uh, maximum penalty of year and a half in prison to five years. Well, I don't have a problem with that, except the district attorney's office, they're the ones that won't waive juveniles into adult court for stealing cars, no matter how many cars they steal. They're the ones that rarely ask for jail penalties in the first place when it comes to car theft. So this is another one of these things where you can increase the penalties, but if you don't have a DA's office that's going to push for incarceration and you don't have judges that are willing to say, yeah, you know, car theft is a really, really big deal, the system ends up bogging down. So I appreciate, once again, that by making second offense or third offense reckless driving, by making it criminal, it's only as good as the prosecutors who are willing to enforce it and the judges who are willing to impose penalties. But to me, once you get that, if you have somebody that's engaged in reckless driving and you have the district attorney's office wherever that just decides they're not going to charge these offenses as crimes or they're going to look the other ways, well, that's more ammunition to vote the DA out the next time he or she is up for reelection. And if you have judges that are unwilling to take those reckless drivers and get them off the streets, well, that's a reason to, to maybe try to vote some of those judges out. And again, that's it just gives us more tools to deal with. Jeff, I certainly have no objection to increasing second, third of conf, uh, offenses, but I, I'd say no, for, I'd say for penalties rather than up to five years in prison, I'd like to see minimum penalties enforced. Well, right, that, that idea would be we have a, a minimum penalty of a year and a half, say, for your third offense reckless driving. And and a maximum, I don't know, maybe make it a maximum of five years so you can take into account the fact the prior, person's prior criminal record. But, you know, we can argue about what the appropriate penalty should be, and I think that's a fair conversation to have. But when, when are we going to get serious about dealing with crime in connection with this? Because the bottom the bottom line is what we're doing now isn't working. We're, we're not solving the car theft problem. We're not solving the reckless driving problem, and we can put all the billboards up we want about it. We can talk all we want about it, but the bottom line is it's not getting any better. And I think the only way you get this started is by creating an incredible disincentive. It starts with juveniles, but it also applies to adults, 
And if you got people that are driving in a reckless fashion, why, oh, why, oh, why do we let them continue to do it up until the time that they kill somebody? Just asking. Okay, let me give you a, a story, something that happened yesterday that kind of ties in the last hour of our conversations. There is a punk 20-year-old guy named Jaquan McMurtry. All right, now here's the deal. March of 2021, maybe you're familiar with the story, McMurtry was released on a signature bond, which means he didn't have to put up any money. He just had to sign promising to appear after charges of possession of a firearm by an adjudicated delinquent of a felony were filed. So that means that when he was a juvenile, he did something that was the equivalent of a felony. So he wasn't allowed to possess a gun. He had a gun. In August of 2021, McMurtry was released on a $3,000 cash bail for three additional charges of the same crime. So this is this incident that occurred in March. The guy is not allowed to have a gun. He's got a gun. He's got other stuff. They let him out on a $3,000 bail. All right. This July, McMurtry, who's out awaiting trial on the gun charges, was charged with possession with intent to deliver cocaine which is a felony. Now you would think okay you've got a you've got a kid who's on bail for gun related charges gets nailed for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute you would think that oh this is going to get him locked up but oh contraire this is Milwaukee County he's released on a $500 cash bail after his initial appearance. So this is after he violates his first bail by committing additional crimes Possession of cocaine with intent to distribute. They let him out on an even lower bail. All right. What could possibly go wrong with this? Um, in October, McMurtry, driving without a valid driver's license, of course, crashes a stolen Mercedes Benz into a tree at about 109 miles an hour. So you've got the guy who's now out on two separate bails after being adjudicated delinquent. He's out on the two bales, no license, stolen bends, drives it into a free tree near Appleton and Villard, 109 miles an hour. The guy is in the, there's a guy in the car with him, his passenger, the passenger dies. All right, so now we take this young man back into court. And they set a $50,000 bail on him to let him out again, 50000 bucks. Well, the amazing thing about this is they find somebody to release that comes up and posts the $50,000. A counselor for troubled youth comes in and says, I'm going to post the fifty grand to let this guy out on the street. And so they let him out on the street on the fifty grand bail. Now, this is a situation where, again, if you were able to take into account dangerousness and things of the like, even in Milwaukee County, my guess is they wouldn't have let him back out on bail, but at least not something that low. But they let him out on bail, a $50,000 bail. Well, what happened What happened in the last week or so is the guy that posted the bail, who admittedly is facing community outrage, like the parents of the kid who was killed in this, they're, they're like, what are you doing? Why, why would you post this bail for this particular person? Well, the guy that posted the bail goes back in and says, I want my money back. I, I want the money back. And you know what happened yesterday? The court returned the guy's bail money because he was no longer willing to, to stand by it. He got his fifty grand back, and the 
20-year-old who has now killed the passenger's car driving the stolen vehicle at 109 miles an hour, he goes back into jail because now there's nobody that's out there to post his bail. Now, in this case, the system worked. Now, you got to wonder why somebody would come forward and put $50,000 up to let somebody with this particular criminal record who did what he did out on on bail. The guy's attorney is outraged because, well, I, I can't believe they're going to send him you know, to jail for this. Well, I can't believe that people pressured the guy to retract his bail. Well, sorry, that's just kind of the way it goes. But if we had meaningful bail reform in the first place, he would probably never have been out in a position to drive that stolen car 109 miles an hour, smash it into a tree, and kill his passenger. So the bottom line is, at least for the moment, Jaquan McMurtry, age 20, is back in jail awaiting trial where he belongs. Could this could this vote for Speaker be any more ridiculous? No. No. <laughs> if you're if, if you're Kevin McCarthy, can you just say don't put me on the next ballot and we'll see where the, the chips fall? I mean if you think you have someone else that's gonna get more support than me, then then have at it. Well, except he wants he I, wants I, the gig. Why you want the gig is a is a whole nother story. I, I guess I, I, I think the whole thing is an embarrassment, but the the thing that to me is just unimaginable is why the House Republicans are letting this play out. In this public fashion, you know, it's now the eighth ballot, and we already know that there's nine people that have voted for somebody else. So he, he's he's not going to get it. We're going to be back where we we were. At some point in time, doesn't somebody say, just voting over and over and over again, one ballot after another, this doesn't accomplish anything. What we need to do is stop this silliness. We need to go back into our, our caucus and figure this out instead of just you know, vote after vote after vote that's going to have the same result. Yeah, we're we're seeing, I guess, kind of how the sausage is made a, a little yeah. bit because, as you mentioned, like we're, we're having these same ballots be cast over and over and over again and nothing is changing. Yeah, right. And I find it hard to believe with what we've heard from people who were, you know, against Kevin McCarthy being able to get, a you know, what, 16 out of the 20 to, to go to your side. I, I just feel like that's very hard to believe because we haven't heard we want these specific concessions. We've just right. heard we don't want him. Well, right. There's going to have to be some deal that's made at, at some point in time or somebody different or whatever. And I guess my only point is just having having the, the same election over and over and over again. That's it, it just it it makes it makes no sense. It is a waste of time. It is a waste of spirit. You need to say we're going to adjourn and then we're all going to go back into whatever room we go back to and we're going to come out with with some sort of plan, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or whether it's somebody else, and, and we're going to do it. It just makes everybody look bad. At what point do you just start rooting for it to go on and on and on forever? Like, is there a point when we get to, like, ballot 15 and it's the same three people's names up there? You're just like, you know what? Let's just keep going. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, and Grothman was alluding to this, I don't think the I don't think the employees get paid. Unless they do this, because the House isn't technically okay. in session, right? So you know, you're going to have some of these people, like your aides and all that, who are going to start missing their paychecks if this kind of goes on. Again, I don't know what the end game is. I don't think anybody knows what the end game is. But just having this, essentially the same vote with one person ch- changing votes, but essentially the same vote over and over. As somebody said, that's the definition of insanity: is doing the same thing over and over again and being surprised the results aren't different. They're absolutely, absolutely right, and it's just. You know, Mike, the thing that from people with a historical perspective, there have only been two times. This is only the third time since the Civil War that they have not elected a House speaker on the first ballot. Once was during the Civil War. Once was in 1923. And now 
2020, you know, 2023. It's the 100-year anniversary. It it is. (laughs) It's just because, I mean, what typically happens is you go into your caucus, you have the Republicans or Democrats, you know, they take a vote, and whoever wins the majority, then everybody comes out and they vote for that person. Well, you've got some of these folks who just are refusing to do that, and they've got the whole thing tied up, and it just, it, it, it makes Republicans look bad, it makes the country look bad, and I, I just keep waiting for him to say we're not going to come back and have a vote until we we have a plan. But I, do you think it, twelve twelve ballots is kind of my thought? Where okay, we're going to have to go back, and we're going to have to come back with something. I, I I have no idea because I mean, right now, okay, this is eight. It's not going to have any different results. They've been voting since what eleven o'clock our time. Um, it, it's it's not going to have any different results, and I. I I, I just, I mean, I don't know what the, if I sound frustrated, I don't know what the end game of the silliness is, because I don't think anybody knows what the end game is. And it doesn't seem necessarily close, you know, it's not like McCarthy is falling short by three and you can make some sort of a deal. I mean, like I said, hearing the people who are the, what do they call them, never Kevins or whatever yeah. they are, they, they don't really have a, here's what would get us to vote for him. It just is, we're not going to vote for him, so how you try and turn that tide I don't know, and I think if Kevin McCarthy had the poll or the connections or whatever it is to do that, you probably already would have because it's not necessarily really getting any better for him. Right, at and this no, point. And, and you have people, and now everybody's angry at everybody else, so appropriately so. I mean, if I was, and, and I kind of alluded to this when I was talking to Glenn Grossman the other day, if I was one of the, let's say I'm one of the 201 people who voted for Kevin McCarthy on that first ballot, now I'm honked off with these 20 or so dissidents who are demanding all sorts of things. Well, in order for me to switch my vote, I'm going to want a committee chairman or I'm going to want to be on the Judiciary Committee or I'm going to want this. I, if I'm one of those 201, I, I, I mean, my ego is such that, wait a second, what, what, why should we take these people who are deciding to be the holdouts and why are you giving them something? I was with you. I was loyal from the beginning. And, and now you're going to bump me from a committee assignment that I want, that I might be entitled to simply to get somebody else. It, it's it's just a mess. Yeah. Do you, do you think there comes a time, and, and I know you talked about this with Congressman Grothman yesterday, that you start maybe appealing to some Democrats, which which is a dangerous road to go down because they can just yeah. agree with you and get you in and then, you know, turn around and not, you know, follow through with what you had previously agreed right. upon. Well, it, it's what they'd want. I mean, they'd want some committee chairmanships mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, that would be, I just, I just, I, do, I don't know. I mean, I guess that all, all that stuff has to be on the table, but it's. I don't know what the answer is, but just continuing to vote right now, there's 14 no votes and three. I mean, it's the same. It's the same people. They're not voting for him. They're not going to change their mind. And at least at this point in time, it goes on and on and on. When we come back, is the insurance company, are the insurance companies the bad guys? I want to tell you a story and get your reaction. Stick around. A couple people are asking a question. Why, why are we having this vote? Why wasn't this settled after November? Here, here, let me just kind of give you the history of how this typically works. Okay, after an election, those people who are going to be the, the new members of Congress, they get together in their caucus, in their big room. In this case, there's 222 Republicans. What has happened historically is there are maybe there's two or three people that want to be the leader, that want to be the speaker. There's Jeff and there's Charlie and there's Mike. And, you know, in this caucus room, we're all up there, we're all nominated, and people vote. And whoever has the majority vote, okay, Jeff has more votes than Charlie and Mike. What has happened historically, 
up until this year with both Republicans and Democrats is then once you go out on the House floor and you have the vote, ev- all the Republicans or all the Democrats vote in support of the person who had the majority in the caucus. Now, you know, Jeff might not have been your first choice, but it doesn't matter. You know, that that's what you have. It's party unity. Okay, we're going to vote. Everybody's going to vote for Jeff, so we're not going to have th- this play out. This is the first time in 100 years where you have enough people to bollocks this up who've decided we don't care what the majority of our caucus wants. We're not going to go along with it. And this will be resolved at some point in in time. Not exactly sure how. My guess is it's going to be somebody other than Kevin McCarthy, who's the speaker. But the problem is that this this is going to play out over the next couple of years because I just don't see how anything gets done because you're going to have a handful of these flamethrowers on every issue who are going to decide, as we talked about at the start of the show, well, I, I like 95% of this bill, but I don't like this. And so I'm not going to vote for the bill in general. And as a result, nothing is going to get done. Okay. Is the insurance company, are the insurance companies the bad guys? Here's a story. I saw this it was on Channel 12. Um, a couple... In Milwaukee, uh, two families tell Channel 12 their Kias were stolen multiple times, and now their insurance companies are dropping them. Um, One couple say that within months of signing a three-year lease with Kia, their car was stolen from their driveway in August of 2021. After getting the car replaced with a new Kia through the insurance company, the car was then stolen in March of 22 downtown near Turner Hall. So it's filed a a second time. Okay, they get a replacement vehicle that the insurance company pays for. Finally, they were targeted a third time within hours of getting their replacement vehicle. This time it was in Bayview in April of 22. So three separate claims. We were stuck in the lease. They told us it would be $4,000 to break it. When they find the cars, the seats are ripped out. We had kids' seats in there, so they knew it was a family car. That's the thing that hurt the most. Recently, the couple said they received a letter in the mail from their insurance company, Progressive, saying it was not going to renew the family's policy. I called them up and explained we were not dangerous driving or reckless driving. We were victims of a crime three times. They says it doesn't matter. They have three marks against our name. Story goes on to say they aren't the only ones facing the problem. Another woman says her Kia was stolen twice in the same area on Milwaukee's east side, first in July of 2021 and again in November of 2022. She said the first time thieves caused $14,000 in damage. I think they put sugar in the tank. That's what I was told. That's why I had to replace the engine. She said within four days of getting the car back from getting fixed, it was stolen again. Went on a joyride, purposely rolled it into a street pole. Okay, so you've got this damage. Her insurance company says we'll likely drop her coverage as well. I don't understand. I'm the victim. I'm not the criminal. I can understand it's odd to have two thefts on the same vehicle, but it's not my fault. It's the fault of those kids. It's the Kia boys. Our number. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I, I want... To be real clear here, I am very, very sympathetic with what's happening to the these folks who find themselves being dropped by the insurance companies. They are they are in one respect victims. 
right? They didn't do anything other than have the audacity to buy, number one, a Kia, and number two, leave the, the car parked on a city street, which around here in Milwaukee is just an invitation to have your car stolen. Uh, that's And that's that's an unfortunate thing. But now the insurance companies are saying, okay, well, you know, we've 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 paid to replace the car. We've paid to replace the car. We've paid to replace the car. Sorry, we're done. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Do you fault the insurance companies after paying multiple claims to replace cars who finally say enough is enough? We're, we're sorry we can't continue to insure you. Is that an unreasonable position for the insurance companies to take? 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. I mean, here's the story in a nutshell. One couple who owns a Kia had it stolen, had the vehicle stolen three separate times. And by that, I mean, at a Kia, car gets stolen, gets totaled. Insurance company gets them a new Kia. All right, car gets stolen, totaled again. Insurance gets, company gets them another Kia. So this is this is the third. Another story is people own a Kia, <clears throat> car gets stolen, gets totaled. The insurance company buys them a second car. That car gets uh, stolen, totaled, and, and they're going to be covered for that, that second loss. But moving forward, the insurance company says, sorry, we're, 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 you're discontinued. We're not you, – you've had X number of claims. We understand that these claims aren't your fault in the case that – I mean, it's not like you were the reckless driver or something. But for whatever reason, after we pay out X number of claims, that, that's that's done. And I guess I, I appreciate and I sympathize with the problem that these folks are in, and maybe it's a justification to be outraged at the city of Milwaukee that allows, you know, criminals to do this, the court system that's a failure. Um, maybe part of it is maybe you should think about, you know, buying, you know, maybe it means you shouldn't buy Kias or things like that. But I don't know that I think this is, matter of fact, forget I don't think. I, this is not, in my opinion, the insurance company's problems. After you file multiple claims, what happens is your insurance premiums go up, and then ultimately at some point in time the, the insurance isn't going to write you a policy. Jeff, I'm an insurance agent. I can tell you that insurance companies are not charities. Filing excess claims put you in a higher risk category, whether it's stolen cars or an at-fault accident. If insurance companies paid out on every claim filed, our rates would be much higher than they are now. There has to be a point where the insurance company takes action. By the way, I work with both Progressive and West Bend Mutual, and this is a common practice for both carriers. Unfortunately, this is the world we live in. And while we're singling out Progressive and West Bend, and I'm a big fan of West Bend, but the truth of the matter is I, I think this is like any insurance company. If you have, regardless of fault, If you have claim after claim after claim, at some point in time, they're going to decide that you are a bad risk. Let's start with uh, Brian in Milwaukee. Brian, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I, I feel bad for the individual, but I don't blame the insurance companies. In fact, I have a friend of mine knows an individual that got their Kia stolen and their insurance company paid off, you know, paid them sure. for the car and told them flat out, if you buy another Kia, we will drop you. They said, buy anything else, not a Kia. Right, because it, it's too much of a risk and we don't want to insure that vehicle. And that's from the insurance company's perspective. I think that's a perfectly reasonable position to take because it's the Kias that are getting stolen and they don't want to be in a situation of having to keep buying new cars. I agree. Yeah, no, thanks for. I mean, it, it's like, see, it, it's like, 
It's like anything. Okay, I, if I, I mean, I have a. Um, people know this. I mean, I have a. I have a condo in Florida, and we were right in the center of you know Hurricane Ian a couple months ago. Now we were very very fortunate because we had. While there was a lot of damage to the landscape and stuff, we were far enough, far enough inland. There was no water in our condo, and no, you know, the roof didn't get blown off or anything like that. But we had a bunch of water in in the garage, which didn't cause much damage, except it got into the tailpipe of the car that I was temporarily storing there, and the car ended up being a loss. So I, it, the, the insurance company paid off, as is appropriate. But my guess is, if in the next couple years something like that were to happen again, um, the insurance company might start looking at me and deciding whether or not I'm I'm a good risk, or you know whether or not if they're going to write me, they're they're going to you know uh, again the policy allows me to temporarily store vehicles you know at different places even though you know the, the vehicle ultimately comes back to Milwaukee, uh, but I, that would be fair. That that would be fair, and it's a risk you take. It's a risk you take when you file insurance claims. Let's talk to Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm Happy good. New Happy New Year to you, sir. Yes, uh, I can't add more than what you said and the two previous callers have said. Um, you know, it reaches a point with an insurance company, you know, they have their actuaries and number crunchers, and they say, you know what, this is not worth it anymore. And this is not a unique case. This happens to other people as well. Um, and, you know, as you said, the outrage should be directed towards the people stealing the cars and the prosecutors and city milwaukee for not taking these stuff seriously yeah exactly and, and that's where you direct it now thanks for the call mike and happy new year to you that that that's where this needs to be directed and i appreciate on the one level the people who are already victims they are being victimized again in a, in a sense because okay now you, you can't get insurance but that's 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 what insurance is all about i mean the reality is if you I mean, if if you live in an urban area, for example, where there's more reckless driving and there's more people around, chances are your insurance rates are going to be higher than if you're in a in a rural area. They they look at all those you know different factors that are that are there, and I mean they they decide what the risk is, and as long as the risk isn't unfairly discriminatory, well, there, there's no there's there's nothing that the insurance commissioner or anybody else is going to do with it and i would argue that in the city of milwaukee if you make the decision that you're going to drive a kia or you're going to drive to the city of milwaukee and park that kia on the street you got to understand that there's a decent chance at least that you're going to come back and that car is going to be gone now that might mean you want to think twice about driving a kia it might mean you want to think twice about driving a kia into milwaukee but but those are all decisions you make i i appreciate the issue these folks have, I understand why they're upset, but it seems to me if they want to be upset, they should be upset with the city for doing nothing to stop all the car thefts that are out there. And that's where it all starts. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Oh, as we were going on the air, my call screen disappeared. It is now back. I um, It's always interesting to me about how, especially when it comes to politics and government, we make such a big deal about things and we spend all this taxpayer dollars. And at the end of the day, nobody cares. 
uh, about it. Let me give you an example of this. Over and I have made the point that regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, whether you love him or you hate him, the House Ways and Means Committee obtaining his personal tax returns and then rushing to make them public is a very, very bad precedent. Now, I understand that people who run for president historically have voluntarily made their tax returns public, and, and, and I get it. And if you want to argue that we should have a law that says that anybody who's the major party nominee for president or anybody who's elected president should have to make their tax returns public, I, I think we can have a debate about whether that, that's a good idea or not. But that's not the way the law works. The law says tax returns are private. Now, there is a law that says the members of the the House Ways and Means Committee can obtain any individual's tax return, Um, your tax return, my tax return, Donald Trump's tax return, except there's only for very limited purposes. And in this particular case, let's be honest, the House Ways and Means Committee, when the Democrats still controlled that, they wanted to get it and they wanted to embarrass Donald Trump. Because tax returns are supposed to be private, by the way. That, that, that doesn't change that. But they got it, and they rushed to place a report, and they rushed to release this report. So this has been a battle that's been going on for the last several years about getting access to Donald Trump's tax returns. I argued all along that I think it's bad to weaponize this because now that the Republicans control the House Ways and Means Committee or will ultimately when they get a speaker, now if the Republicans decide, hey, we want to look at – anybody's tax returns, and then subsequently put it in a report and make it public, we can do it. And if I just think weaponizing tax returns, regardless of what side you're on, is very, very bad. And my point all along has been, look, if there was evidence that Donald Trump committed some sort of tax fraud or whatever, that's what you have the IRS for, and they've got a ton of criminal investigators, and you've got U.S. attorney's offices and all these different things. The idea of trying to obtain his tax returns and make them public, it was for no other purpose other than to sort of, I guess, embarrass him if, if that was going to be the effort. And I think doing something to just embarrass somebody or hoping you're going to embarrass somebody or doing it because, well, maybe we can do this, I think that's a bad, it sets a very, very bad precedent. And I think the Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee, just my prediction, are going to come to regret this decision. But anyhow, we spent, because Trump fought it, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, in litigating this, whether they had the right to do it, maybe millions of dollars. Who knows what the ultimate thing is going to be? But a couple of weeks ago, and I think it ultimately happened while I was on vacation, the, the House, they made a point right before the Democrats lost control of, of releasing the, the full tax returns. Here's what they are. You, you can see um, there's really no precedent for doing that, but they put it out there again in their effort to embarrass Donald Trump. So here we are. What, a week and a half later, after years of fighting, the tax returns have been public, and you know what? Nobody cares. The, the issue is completely and totally gone. There, there's nothing in the tax returns that suggests that there's criminal behavior or stuff like that. You can look at them. You can say, okay, well, he's claiming all these different losses, and he's carried them over, and you know, maybe some of these losses are too big, or maybe he's not as great as a businessman as he tried to portray himself as. But, but at the end of the day, it's a complete and total nothing burger. 
It, it, it just is, other than the fact that the people who hate Donald Trump get to say, oh, see, you know, he, he's not as wealthy. Look at he's not as successful as he made us think he was. And the people who love Donald Trump say, well, he was a victim of a witch hunt. And, you know, candidly, both sides probably have some perspective. But I was just thinking this was this big deal. And, you know, you had in the newspapers, you had just tons of trees that were killed in order to, you know, cover the story. And you had all these editorial writers who were outraged. And you had all the talking heads on television who were talking about this. And at the end of the day, after all this battle, nobody cares. It's just it's an issue you don't even hear about anymore. There was it was a one day story about, well, this is what the tax returns. I'm looking at The Washington Post. Oh, Donald Trump's tax returns show wide use of real estate losses. OK, yeah. So that, you know, big, big deal. I mean, that's that's kind of the bottom line. You know, big deal. What are we trying to accomplish here? But we, we spent all this time and all this angst and, and all this aggravation trying to, oh, let's get Trump's tax returns. This is going to be it. This is going to be definitive. And and once it's released, it's like nobody cares in the first place. So maybe we could have better spent that money. Just saying. When we come back, what happened? I'll explain. We'll discuss. So very glad to have you with us. Getting a lot of feedback on the Trump tax returns. And I mean, look, I, I get it. If you're a Trump hater, you're you know, Trump haters are going to hate. Oh, this is great. We, we've got the tax. My point was, first of all, I think people are going to regret this. This is an unprecedented thing. You are now weaponizing uh, what is always, at least historically, be considered to be personal information. But my larger point was uh, not, nothing came of this. You know, all that for the last three or four years, you've got all these huge battles. We've got to see this. This is it. And the truth is nothing. I mean, nothing of, of substance. Somebody said, well, you know, we, we showed that the IRS didn't audit them in timely fashion. Now, the IRS disagrees with that. One of the Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee, that's his argument. But uh, that, that's you don't need to release the details of the tax returns to determine when an audit started. That this was it was political theater it was an attempt to embarrass Donald Trump. And look, I'm a never again Trumper. So I, I've got no love lost one way or the other. I just think it's bad that we are weaponizing tax returns. And I think that a lot of the people who were embracing this when it happened to Donald Trump, they might not think it's as great um, if the Republicans try to use this. Okay. I, I was, I don't shop. My my wife takes care of most of the shopping, which is good because I just, I, I don't, I, I'm not one of these guys that like to go in the store and browse. I'm a buyer. If I got to go into a store, I go in with a certain mission. Mission. This is what I, I'm here to, I'm here to buy a bathroom scale. So where are the bathroom scales here? I'm going to buy it. I don't go wandering around different aisles looking for other stuff. I got the bathroom scale. I'm getting out of the store. Having said that, there was a Bed Bath & Beyond store not too far from where I live. And of the various stores that you would go into, I, I like going into the Bed Bath & Beyond store. I mean, it had you'd, you'd go in for the bathroom scale, but inevitably I'd find stuff that kind of looked interesting. Now, again, in the home goods sections, it, it takes a lot to interest me, but they, I, I like the Bed Bath & Beyond stores. I found, I thought that they were well-organized. Well I thought they had a lot of, of stuff in them. And we had a store that was close by us. So, you know, if it was one of those deals where, okay, you're not going to order it on the Internet, you're not going to order it through Amazon, you can go to Bed Bath & Beyond. And I really didn't mind going to Bed Bath & Beyond. So I was disappointed 
couple weeks ago when I saw this sign, I was driving through and said, closing. They were closing this particular store. And I thought, that that's too bad. It's been a while since I've been to Bed Bath & Beyond, but I, I kind of like the store. Well, apparently the problems go well beyond the store within about a mile of where I live. Here's the story in the Wall Street Journal today. Bed Bath & Beyond shares plunge as it explores bankruptcy. Home goods chain says sales for the third quarter are expected to fall by nearly a third. Bed Bath & Beyond said Thursday there is doubt about its ability to keep operations funded as sales continue to fall amid inventory woes and flagging customer traffic at the battered retailer. Um, sales for the third quarter are expected to fall nearly a third. The company's shares and bonds have been trading at distressed levels after it has struggled with a string of losses and burned through its cash reserves. They had secured financing in August to help get through the critical holiday season, but they can't refinance their existing debts. Um, and then it just talks about how, um, they, they, they've just, they've been struggling to keep their stores stocked. And they've been struggling to keep a hold on customers following an overhaul by previous management that replaced national brands with private label label products. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. For those of you, now I understand, maybe you've never been to a Bed Bath & Beyond, but, you know, it's it's a giant home goods store. And as stores like that go, like I say, I thought... I thought it was a pretty good store, and I was always able to find what I needed when I got sent on that mission to go buy things. But clearly, clearly, um, it, it has changed, and now the stores are closing en masse, and it's looking like they're going into bankruptcy, and maybe they're going to be able to come out, but maybe they, they won't. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What happened? And are you sorry to see... Bed Bath and Beyond go, and and if Bed Bath and Beyond goes, you know what what's going to be next? Is is this? Are we really seeing the start of the demise or the continuation of the demise of these big box retailers? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. What went wrong? We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. It's the old National Bank talk and text line. Uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, which was. It's a huge national retailer that I, I think you can make an argument was a, a leader in like the home goods industry. Um, they're, they're closing stores all across the country. Their third quarter numbers were brutal. Um, they're having trouble getting financing. And um, at least according to the Wall Street Journal today, they are considering seeking relief in bankruptcy court, all of which none of which are, are good things. So, you know, what happened here? Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I went last month to buy a new kitchen mat before holiday entertaining. I was shocked that they only had two styles, and both of the mats were $50. With Amazon and Costco, um, they've gone under. I ended up leaving the store empty-handed and ordered one from Amazon for $25. Yeah, Jeff, Bed Bath & Beyond was always way overpriced, and there was nothing there that you couldn't buy on Amazon for a lot less. Huh, um, there you have that. Jeff, they wouldn't have changed their product selection if the previous selection was doing well. I agree that they are a victim of the decline in the big box. There isn't a need for as many of these stores anymore. 
Um, Jeff, I live in Sheboygan. That store closed quite a while ago. People in Sheboygan weren't paying exorbitant prices. It was way out of line. I personally wondered how long they, they how they survived as long as they did. So, I mean, not a lot of love for Bed Bath & Beyond. I guess I look at this and I always... Again, I'm I'm bad. I don't have enough of a framework. I'm a buyer as opposed to the the shopper because, like I say, my my mission would be, hun, we we need a bathroom scale or we we need we need the bath mat that's bath mat or we need this or that or the other thing. I need a spatula or whatever, and I'd get tasked with going over there and buying that particular item. But I, so I admit, in those cases, I, I wasn't price sensitive. I wasn't okay. Well, how much does the spatula cost at Bed Bath and Beyond versus if I go up to Target or if I go up to Costco or whatever? I would just I, I bought it. I was always I always thought that there was a decent selection, but apparently some of that stuff has changed over the years. Jeff, I think they were priced out of business, and I think you know that may very well be the case. But that could be what the larger message is here. The fact that when you talk about the, these big box retailers, whether it's department stores like like Boston Store, for example, which if you've just moved into this area for in the last couple of years, you're saying, what is this Boston Store that this man speaks of? Well, I mean, Boston Store was one of these huge retailers that existed forever. And then it just, you know, the, those stores, the, the classic department store that a lot of us grew up with, just completely and totally disappeared. There's some of the big box retailers that have managed to, to figure out how to do it, whether it's the Targets, which still thrive, and whether it's the, the places like Costco. But for a lot of these big box retailers that are like the specialty places, in this case the home goods, I, I think a lot, what you're seeing in a lot of cases is they're, they're just they're flat out not able to compete especially when they have problems keeping you know, their inventories there. Because if you go over, like the texter was saying, looking for bath mats, and you've only got two choices, well, you might be inclined to look elsewhere. Jeff, I'm no businessman, but I would say comparing online sales in a store to offering it a discount for in-store to spot any differences would be a good place to start. If you can't stay in the black with both systems, you might have to recognize that the search function and variety immediately available online is much more competitive than the limits on being able to stand up as a brick-and-mortar competitor. No, I I think, um, you know, that's it. Jeff, much like you, when I make a decision to buy something, I often like to go someplace and look at it and buy it. I do believe that down the road we're going to be very frustrated when we find out that we're unable to go to stores and actually buy things in person anymore. I, by the way, agree with that. I think that's that's the big challenge, and I've talked about this on this program before. For me, it's it's bookstores, and I I know that there's a lot of people that love the the classic bookstore. I, I I know that that love to go in and look at the stores and stuff, and look at the books. And I appreciate there's always going to be a value for people who want to browse in that particular fashion. But the problem you have with that is. The bookstores are always going to be limited by their, their inventory. I mean, I've told this story before. There was a book I wanted not that long ago, Paper Chase. The guy who wrote Paper Chase died, John Jay. So I, I'd read the book Paper Chase maybe 45 years ago or something like that. I thought, I'm going to read it again. Well, I could have gone to one of the big one of the, one of the bookstores, Barnes & Noble or whatever, and, and they wouldn't have had that book on hand. They might have been able to order it for me or whatever. But then I'm, I'm driving there, and then maybe they'll ship it to me or whatever. On the other hand, I go on my computer, I go on Amazon, and they say, well, we can offer you same-day delivery. And this book that's been you know gone for – it was written 45 years ago. It's on my doorstep either later that day or the next day. 
tough for these big box retailers to compete. So if you're a fan of Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, the it, it's not good. Um, it's not good. When the truth is found to be People came in and said, that was quite a tease. They were naked in 1968. Now they want money. Well, here's the story, and it's quite a story. Um, 1968, there was a movie made called Romeo and Juliet. Matter of fact, that, that movie, it chances are that if you were in, and it was an, ad, an adaptation, of course, the William Shakespeare play, and it was very, very true to the Shakespeare play, um, and it's, it's been widely seen. They estimate that it's made um, hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. It's been sold. It's been it's a movie that's been showed in um, a wide variety. They used to use it as, as a teaching tool for Shakespeare, for example, in in high schools and stuff. They would they would show the movie. So it, it's been around forever. And I think it, it stands as. I don't know how many versions of, of Romeo and Juliet have been committed to film, but it's certainly one of the, the defining versions of that. And if you see the movie Romeo and Juliet, chances are it's probably going to be this 1968 movie that Paramount made. All right, so what's the story? The, the two people who were cast in the lead roles of Romeo and Juliet, Olivia Hussey, who is now 71 years old, she was 15 at the time the movie was made, and Leonard Whiting, um, Olivia Hussey, you maybe have heard about. Leonard Whiting, I don't think he went on to do very much. He was 16 at the time, now 72. So they, they cast these two teenagers at the time. They have filed a lawsuit against Paramount Pictures. They want more than $500 million. They filed this lawsuit on Friday. Why did they file the lawsuit? Well, they said that they were required to perform in in the nude. They said that the director, famous director Francisco Zaffarelli, told them that they must act in the nude or the pictures would fit the picture would fail and their careers would be hurt. The actors said they believed they had no choice but to act in the nude um, in body makeup as demanded. So in the movie itself, Romeo, Whiting's bare buttocks and Hussey's bare breasts are shown briefly during the love scene. The film and its theme song, Major Hits at the Time, been shown to generations of high school students. The people who are suing, the actor and actress, say that they have suffered emotional damage and mental anguish for decades, and that each had careers that did not reflect the success of the movie says they should be entitled to more than $500 million because his bare buttocks and her bare breasts were briefly shown during this particular scene. Now, you might say, Jeff, 1968, well, the lawsuit was filed under a California law temporarily suspending the statute of limitations for child sex abuse. That suspension expired on December 31st, prompting a wave of last-minute lawsuits. 
Um, Hussey previously defended the scene in a 2018 interview with Variety because people said, well, what did you think about this brief nude scene? And back in 2018, she said nobody my age had done that before. Um, I believe the director shot it tastefully. It was needed for the film. But now, now the fact that it's, again, 1968, so you're talking about 50, you know, five years later, they're saying, hey, we think we were the victims of child sex abuse because his rear end and my bare breasts were briefly exposed. Give us $500 million. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think about this lawsuit? Now, at the time, the actors who were minors, I mean, they, they had parents and guardians and stuff who obviously signed off on this over the years, they have defended this saying, oh, it was tastefully done, and we think it was important for, you know, Romeo and Juliet, which this has become this seminal movie, to have, you know, to have this particular scene with brief nudity in it. But we were 15 and 16. Now, 55 years later, we want 500 million bucks. Should they get a dime? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So if you're just tuning in, here, here's the deal. 1968, they make the movie Romeo and Juliet. And you, you may remember that. You might have seen it like in a high school English class or something. It, it's I think many people view it as the definitive ver- movie version of the Shakespeare play. It was also groundbreaking at the time because you know Romeo and Juliet in the play were teenagers. And, and they cast... Um, Olivia Hussey, who was 15 years old in the role as Juliet, they cast Leonard Whiting in the role, he was 16, in the role of, of, of Romeo. There is a scene in the movie, it's, it's a lovemaking scene, and they, they're wearing like, they're, they're wearing like body makeup, but during the scene, his rear end is seen, and you get a brief glimpse of her breast. That, that's, this isn't, I don't even know if it was an R-rated movie at the time, I kind of, Doubt it, but but regardless, there, there, there's a brief, brief, brief glimpse of nudity. They agreed to do it. Their parents and guardians on the set apparently agreed to do it. They have defended, particularly Olivia Hussey, has defended this scene over the years. Yeah, I know it was 15, and this was kind of revolutionary and groundbreaking, but I, I think it was important for the movie to do it. Never argued that she was exploited. Well, California had just put in; they they had a moratorium on the statute of limitations for child sex abuse. That moratorium expired on December 31st. So on the last day of the year, Romeo and Juliet, Whiting and Hussey, run into court and sue Paramount for $500 million, alleging that they have been exploited by his bare butt being shown and a brief glimpse of her breast. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank um, talk and text line. Here's some of the text. Jeff, lawyer up and get money. Um, yeah. Jeff, I believe this is very similar to the Nirvana cover album case, right? That was where the, 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 the in utero, I think that the baby that was shown naked, um, I don't think that person got any money either. Um, Jeff, everyone was walking around naked in 1968. Jeff, this sounds like somebody is broke. 
Well, there is an element about that. Jeff, I don't think they have a case. Statute of limitations is way past. Well, again, this is there was this moratorium. Sounds like they're looking for a payday. 55 years is a long time. Yeah, a- absolutely. 55 years is a long time. And, and to me, look, it, it would be one thing. It would be one thing if they did not know that, hey, you're, you're going to be doing this nude scene. That, 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 that's one thing. It's another thing where, okay, we know this is what's happening. We're doing this for art, and, you know, you ultimately have the decision to do it or not, but we think that the movie is going to really struggle if you don't. It, it's one thing to say you were encouraged to do it, but at the end of the day, you make this decision to do it, and apparently your parents sign off on it, to come back when you're 71 years old and say, gee, I was exploited when I was 15. It's a money grab, um, you know, period. Jeff, really, at the current age of 55 years old after the film was made, I watched it in high school in the mid-70s. Why did they suddenly feel exploited? Work must be sparse. Um, well, they also argue that that doing Romeo and Juliet, that their careers didn't take off as much as the movie was successful. Well, okay, maybe they just never found a, another piece of, uh, of filmmaking that was as good as, like, the Shakespeare play. But I think it's really tough to argue that, gee, whatever, if, if Leonard Whiting didn't have as good a career as he might have hoped, it was because somebody got a brief glimpse of his bare butt in Romeo and Juliet in 1968. And similarly, if Olivia Hussey wants to argue that her career wasn't as successful as it otherwise might have been, I think it's very tough to make the argument that that was because, gee, you got a glimpse of, of her breast in a brief glimpse of her breast in this movie. Let's talk to Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hi, on Happy New Year. Same to you. So I, I agree with you completely. I mean, it's, it's, they enjoyed the accolades, the, the money, the fame, all of this, um, you know, prior. And then all of a sudden we're going to go prude and become prudish on this. Did they not know what was happening? They knew what the, the script was. It's sort of their their guardians or their parents. Right. And it's 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 just a joke. When you look at what's going on today, I mean, own it. It was right. the movie of the time and that's it. So so why why not just rise above it and be like, Yeah, that was me. That was one in my career. That was one of the first yeah, you know, you you, know, you, you rate no, you know, Chris, you make a really good point. There, there's there, there's millions of actors out there who have roles in movies, and, and they don't talk. The, the movie appears and it just disappears, and you never heard about you never hear about that person again. Olivia Hussey, for example, she's always going to be she's always going to be remembered as Juliet in that movie Romeo and Juliet. It, it to the extent that right. she had any status or whatever, a lot of that came from being the 15 year old girl who was cast in that movie role. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, that was kind of what you did back then. And that was that was how the movie, how it was, you know, right. how it was written. I mean, that's the way it was. That that was a script. Yep. No, so thank, if you didn't yep. feel comfortable. You shouldn't have done out. it. Right. No, exactly. Thanks for the call. Right. And it's and again, it's not like you, you didn't know that they were filming you when when you did this. I mean, this isn't like it's surreptitious. So I, I just pulled up. You know, Olivia Hussey says that she, she never achieved you know, the kind of success that the movie Romeo and Juliet had. Okay, here's some of the movies that she was in afterwards. Uh, Romeo and Juliet was 1968. Her next movie was 1971, All the Right Noises. I have no idea what that is. Then she was in The Summertime Killer. Then she was in Black Christmas. 
Then she was in Death of the Nile. She had a small part in that. The Cat and the Canary, Virus, Turkey Shoot, The Man with Bogart's Face, The Jeweler's Shop, The Undecided War, Quest of the Delta Knights, Ice Cream Man, Headspace, Seven Days of Grace, Tortilla Heaven, and Social Suicide. Okay, those are, those are, that's her filmography, and then she's got some other stuff as well. But I don't know, if you're trying to figure out, gee, Olivia Hussey has, has never, she was never able to replicate the success she found as Juliet, Romeo and Juliet. Maybe it would be because you're appearing in movies called The Summertime Killer, or Turkey Shoot, or The Man with Bogart's Face, or The Queen of the Delta Knights, or Ice Cream Man. It it might be a reflection of the material you chose or the parts that you were offered and chose to take. Um, Maybe it's the fact that, gee, you know, Romeo and Juliet was a much more popular sort of movie and a better story than, I don't know, um, uh, Body Proof, or Island Prey, or those were like some made-for-things uh, movies made, or Headspace. Just saying, I mean, maybe maybe the reason your career foundered was less because there was a brief glimpse of your breast, or in his case, you know, a brief glimpse, glimpse of his bottom, as opposed to, well, maybe that, that wasn't really what stopped you. $500 million, I'm telling you, it's, it's just a head-scratcher. Hey, before we, we bring in uh, John and Sandy, I just... I, I, I got one of these texts, and it was sort of interesting. One of our texters called up and texted in and said, you know, I really like that topic you did before. You, you did the Bed Bath & Beyond topic, and then and then you moved on. You know, you, you move on. You do a lot of topics. You, you should stay with topics longer. And my note back was, well, here, here's, the, here's the deal. On this program, we, we move through things quickly. It's just the way I, I do the show. I, you listen to some shows. Um, talk shows and, and the hosts will they'll, they'll spend an hour talking about a particular topic. That's what they like to do. That's how they do it. Um, that's not the style I have. I like to do a fast moving show. And yeah, so we'll talk about something for a segment. You know, we might revisit that issue a day or two later. But yeah, think we're going to move along on the different segments. And there's all sorts of reasons for why I do that that we don't necessarily need to go into. But I guess um, for people out there, boy, he really moved through that. Well, I'm glad you like the topic. I, I really am. And keep listening because maybe we'll revisit it at some point in time in the future. But the other thing is we move through topics. It's just the way we do the show. It's the way I like to do the show. And it's the way I think a lot of people like it. So you know, you know, buckle up your seatbelts because when we do three hours, we're going to cover a lot of material, and I think that's the fun way to do the show. Don't want to let too much grass grow under any of our feet. 